0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. Two that you might like are A Companion to Marx's Capital, The Complete Edition, and The Limits to Capital, which are both by David Harvey and out in new editions. For nearly 40 years, David Harvey has written and lectured on capital, becoming one of the world's foremost Marxist scholars. Based on his lectures, this volume, bringing together his guides to volumes 1, 2, and much of 3, presents this depth of learning to a broader audience, guiding first-time readers through a fascinating and deeply rewarding text. A Companion to Marx's Capital offers fresh, original, and sometimes critical interpretations of a book that changed the course of history, and, as Harvey intimates, may do so again. Now a classic of Marxian economics, The Limits to Capital, provides one of the best theoretical guides to the history and geography of capitalist development. In this edition, Harvey updates his seminal text with a substantial discussion of the turmoil in world markets today. Delving into concepts such as fictitious capital and uneven geographical development, Harvey takes the reader step by step through layers of crisis formation, beginning with Marx's controversial argument concerning the falling rate of profit and closing with a timely foray into the geopolitical and geographical implications of Marx's work. A companion to Marx's capital, the complete edition, and the limits to capital— Are both by David Harvey and out now in new editions from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm temporarily broadcasting from Santiago de Chile. El Chapo Guzman, the leader of Mexico's Sinaloa cartel, is on trial in a New York federal courthouse. After twice making his way out of Mexican prisons, he was extradited to the United States. This is what counts as a major victory in the never-ending U.S.-led war on drugs, which the U.S. has in recent decades exported to Mexico. Yet El Chapo's arrest, like that of so many others, has done nothing to stop Mexican drug cartels from continuing to export massive quantities of cocaine and heroin and other drugs into the United States. Neither has it caused cartels to pause the murderous bloodbath that they are visiting upon the Mexican people. The Mexican state continues to be a deeply corrupted one, and the domestic deployment of a Mexican military deeply implicated in human rights violations is set to continue. There is still no justice for the disappeared students from Ayotzinapa. These are some of the issues that I discuss in today's interview, which I conducted from Providence before I left town with acclaimed Mexican investigative journalist Anabel Hernandez. Hernandez is the author of A Massacre in Mexico, the true story behind the missing forty-three students, and Narcoland, the Mexican drug lords and their godfathers, whose English editions are published by Verso. Annabel Hernandez, welcome to the dig.
1: Thanks to you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: There is a lot that I'd like to talk with you about, and it's hard to know where to start. But I guess my first question is, can you explain the big picture of the drug war in Mexico right now before we get into a lot of detail? How many people are dying? Who is doing the killing? And how, in what I guess is roughly the 12th year of the worst of the violence, has that violence reshaped Mexican society, economy, and politics.
1: By the last 18 years, more than a quarter of people have been, have been more than in Mexico because this war between the cartels, according with the official official numbers of the Mexican government. And um, more than 30, 30, 36,000 people have been disappeared also, because this war between the cartels, we are talking about humanitarian disaster. I mean, it's, 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 it's a very, I think that right now, if you ask me, the, the huge crisis in Mexico, the biggest crisis in Mexico is a humanitarian crisis. Because uh, all these people that disappeared, because all these people that uh, was murdered, all these crimes are absolutely impugned. Now, Mexico started just last uh, December 1st, a new government that supposedly offered to the Mexican society a change in terms of the security plan for Mexico and also offered to the victims, uh, found their, their relatives and get justice to the people that were murdered. But until now, really, uh, what I can see, what I can hear is that nothing is happening in Mexico yet and the people just start to be desperate?
0: Andrés Manuel López Obrador, who you were referring to, uh, a leftist from the Morena party who recently took office, he, he campaigned on a different sort of agenda, promising abrazos, no balazos, hugs, not gunshots. No se puede enfrentar violencia con más violencia. You can't fight violence with more violence. But he just announced the creation of a new National Guard. To take on the cartels, is he just pursuing more of the same?
1: Your first question was which wh- what is what is the status of the of the cartels in Mexico right now? And the status is exists uh, big cartels in Mexico, like uh, five or six that are very strong that make this huge business of trafficking, trafficking drugs in, 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 uh, outside, uh, outside of Mexico, I mean, in the world. And exist a lot of gangs, little gangs in Mexico that kidnap people. So these small groups that also steal gas, small groups make extortions every day. Small groups that try to control street by street the drug uh, the drug uh cells um, and we are talking about that in Mexico doesn't exist any control of the state over of, of the state over this organized crime in the other hand, we have institutions in Mexico that are just destroyed the federal police the military the marines. The state police, the municipal police, all kinds of police, of police in Mexico are penetrated by one or many of these gangs and cartels that exist in Mexico. Just here in the trial against El Chapo in New York, in, in this court, federal court in Brooklyn, you just can understand how big is the problem. Every day is a new witness Saying how many millions pay to pay of of bribes to buy the federal police, to buy military, to buy members of the of the of the of the Marines, how how millions they pay to the president, former presidents. So it's all the state penetrate in the highest levels in Mexico. So the problem is that this new president, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, want to create this new institution. Taking the people, the new officials from the old institutions, people from federal police, people from Marines, people from from military. so you are just taking again the bad people in a new institution. and i w- I'm telling you just right now, this will not work.
0: I want to talk about the history a little bit. This critical juncture took place in two thousand six when President Felipe Calderón took office, replacing President Vicente Fox. What were his policies and how was it that they created such a horrific explosion of violence?
1: The policies uh, in the government of um, Felipe Calderón were two. One in front the public, one in front the international community, saying, I am starting a big war against the drugs, against the drug cartels. I will, I, I, me and the state will fight to to keep the order and to protect the citizens. This was the public, the public announcement on, on, on the first days of December of 2006, when Felipe Calderón started his government. But... Under the table, the secret policy is protect to El Cartel de Sinaloa and use all the power of the state against the enemies of the El Chapo Guzmán. That's why this this war became worst. I have to say that the first one that started this strategy, if you want to call it like that, was Vicente Fox in, since, since El Chapo uh, escaped from jail on January of 2001. So during the six years of the government of Vicente Fox, he, his government were protecting the Sinaloa Cartel and using the power of the state against the enemies of the Sinaloa cartel. But Felipe Calderón not just followed the same strategy, but also sent to the military to the streets. I mean, the military that that, that used to be inside the the quarters, uh, they start to be everywhere in Mexico and... That's why they got very penetrated by many cartels, because they were in the streets talking with the drug lords every day, exposed to the corruption.
0: One result of this strategy of militarization and of attempting to decapitate cartel leadership, at least the leadership of those cartels that were not the Sinaloa cartel, has been this spectacular fragmentation of cartel organizations which has led to the rise of powerful new groups like the Jalisco cartel, New Generation, and so many. there's so many other examples. In 2008, the Beltran Levia organization split from Sinaloa. The Knights Templar emerged from a split with La Familia in 2011. The Zetas split from the Gulf cartel. It's almost like the drug war functions as an antitrust regulator of the cartels breaking up Monopolies, which then unleashes this violent competition across the country. Can you say a little bit about this fragmentation?
1: The strategy of the Mexican government was uh, fight against the enemies, the cartels' enemies of the Sinaloa cartel, and protect to the Sinaloa cartel and their partners. When a, 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 a war start inside the Sinaloa Cartel and, uh, and, and its partners called Federation, when when this Federation break up and Beltran Leyva's brothers separate from El Chapo Guzmán and when uh, the Juárez Cartel separate from El Chapo Guzmán and when other groups separate from El Chapo, from El Sinaloa Cartel, the Mexican government starts also to fight against Juárez Cartel, uh, Beltrán Leibas Cartel, and also, of course, against lo, against el Cartel del Golfo, against el Cartel de Tijuana. So uh, when, when many of these heads start to be arrested, no one really were able to keep uh, the coalition inside the Gulf Cartel. So, many many members of the Gulf Cartel that used to be, like Los Etas, that used to be loyal to uh, Ocel Cárdenas Guillén. When Ocel Cárdenas Guillén, the head of a uh, Gulf Cartel, were arrested, was arrested during the government of Vicente Fox, some war start inside the Gulf Cartel, and at the end, the Los Losetas separate from from uh, the Gulf Cartel. So the Gulf Cartel and Los Etas also start to fight between each other to the piece of land of of, of Tamaulipas and Veracruz and Tabasco and all this part of the Gulf of Mexico. So uh, when the Mexican government, in the government, uh, when Felipe Calderón was the president, start to arrest many heads or kill or murder to many heads of the Los Etas, little cells the little guys, the, 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 the heads of the Nuevo León or the head of, of Veracruz start to create, they start to create their own cartels because they, they didn't have any more a leader to follow. What happened? This is when Mexico became more 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 dangerous for the society because at one level, the big cartels, the big heads are able to do this job to traffic drugs in the world, the international drug trafficking. They have a world, they have contacts with the people that produce cocaine in Colombia, in Bolivia, in Peru, and they have contacts in United States to sell the, the, the drugs and sell them. But these little cells... If they want to be in the huge business of drug trafficking, they are not able because they don't have any more the contacts because the big people that traffic drugs in Colombia doesn't know it. And you know, this business is like this. I don't know you. Why? I will give you uh, one ton, one ton of, of, of cocaine. Who will pay me? You cannot guarantee the payment. So that's why many of these little cells start to do another kind of crimes extortions uh traffic of women they they start they start to kidnap the immigrants that cross by mexico to arrive to united states they start to kidnap them they start to use them for trafficking um, uh, for uh, sexual trafficking and all these things and they start to to be more violent with 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 the people in the streets because the big business where they used to belong and for them, and they have to survive. These people will not become good because the boss died. So they start to do another kind of crimes. That's why Mexico, if you see all the numbers, every crime, every every kind of crime in Mexico grows in this period. Because all these gangs, all these little cells that are not anymore in the big business of international drug trafficking, they. They, they learn how to survive and sadly they learn they they, they learn to survive exploiting uh, all, all the Mexican society in many ways. What happened with the big cartels that survive in this war? They just are still doing their affairs. I mean, Sinaloa Cartel still traffic is still trafficking drugs like like nothing happened. The Tijuana Cartel now has a new boss. The one um the one son or one nephew of Los Arellano Felix brothers. Now, this young man is the head of uh, Arellano Félix Cartel. Then you have in Juárez Cartel some also nephews of, of Amado Carrillo Fuentes. I mean, sons of Vicente Carrillo Fuentes that are trying to keep in the business, are trying to to maintaining the connections with Colombia and Peru and Bolivia to traffic cocaine in United States—they are not—they are—they are not big, but they are uh, also didn't disappear, so they still in the in the business. And you have, of course, new this new cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación. You have La Mano Con Ojos. You have many other cartels, and I have to say. Now exist many, many, many organizations, new organizations, new chapels to try to explain it like this, that no one knows that it, because this system of the cartel doesn't exist anymore. I mean, it's not the new way to make the business. Of course, the old cartels still existing, as I said. but now it's a new figure of how to traffic drugs to the world. So what I have heard is that, okay, some guys in Mazatlán, some guys in Jalisco, some guys in Michoacán get together for one big traffic of uh, some tons of cocaine to United States. They make like a pool for one week and then they are separate again and do business separately. You, you, now, now this is the way to make the business. And they don't have this big structure of the cartels, you know, the head, the sicarios, or the alcones. They don't have any more these kind of stru- structures. What I have heard is that they have... Um,
0: it's flexibilized like the neoliberal economy.
1: That's the point. After all this war and after all this massacre in Mexico, uh, now you see the car, the, 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 the people, that, the big people, the big capos, the big uh, drug lords that want to steal in the business, they, they learn to be more discreet. Why? No, we don't want to be, we want to make the money as El Chapo, but we don't want to be famous. We don't want to be that anyone knows who we are and exists a lot of new names, a lot.
0: Along the lines of that that point you're making about the the changing economic organization of the drug business, I want to ask about the most recent former president, Enrique Peña Nieto, who just left office. His strategy was to make Mexico look good to international investors. And he focused on He focused on pushing through neoliberal economic reforms, but the scholars Christy Thornton and Adam Goodman wrote, quote, The irony of touting market-based reforms as a means of sweeping the drug trade under the rug is that the cartels themselves have become some of the most ruthlessly effective multinational capitalist enterprises in Mexico. What was Peña Nieto attempting to accomplish and do you agree that the cartels and their law of silver or lead, plato o plomo, play a central role inside of rather than outside of this larger and incredibly unequal Mexican economy?
1: Well, it's, it's, it's a very complex uh, question because um, exists many answers for this. First, I think that all, that all the reforms made by the government of Enrique peña Nieto were I mean were not serious were not deep and was not they this he made these reforms not to try to cover the operations of the cartels they they didn't they, he didn't because they tried to to to, to distract uh, as, as a destructor of, of, of all the violence that were happening in Mexico. I think that um, Mexican presidents uh, for many many years, by many, many years, have been captured for interest, interests um, uh, outside from Mexico. I mean, all these um, companies, international companies that make a lo- a big, big and long and a long lobby to get this privatization of, of Pemex uh, and let the the capital pri- private capitals invest in Pemex openly. This was not because he wanted to, to cover and uh, don't see the cartels uh, not, was not because this, but was because this government is, when the government is very corrupted, not just protect to the cartels, also sell the country to everyone that is able to pay it as the cartels. And that's why the, 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 all these reforms related with energy and many other things. Because, I mean, this man, Enrique Peña Nieto, just put in sale Mexico the natural resources of Mexico. They, he did it. He did it because he was corrupted. He is corrupted. It was not because of the cartels. The issue of the cartel was another thing. The problem is that the, the Mexican government, yes, it's true, trying to show a new face of Mexico, try to cover all the deaths, all the murders, all the violence, all the disappearance, just disappear of the speech of the president didn't never disappear in the, in, in, in the real life of the Mexican, but disappeared of the speech of the, of the president. When we, when we went to international conference, he never talked about all the violence. He never talked about his strategy against the violence because of course was not any strategy. The strategy was, let's, let's pretend that this is not happening. That was, that was his strategy. That's why at the, at the end of, of, of his government was almost dead, or I think dead more people than in the government of, of Felipe Calderón. And that is saying a lot. So I think that this game, if you want to call it like this, of the cartels, the plat, plata o plomo, really doesn't exist in Mexico. This is a pretext created by the group people. I mean I have been talking with the, with the with the cartels members of the cartels by years by the last 15 years I can tell you uh, I I saw many things I saw many meetings I, I, uh, many meetings um, occurred between the me- members of the government and the cartels that were, uh, I, I was noticed about this, the cartels, many, many members of the cartels to- told me, and never was because these officers had had, had a, a gun in, in the head, you know, wasn't like that, was because money. So all these uh, things related with oh I do it because I am, I have to be corrupted because I am so scared they will kill me that is not true I I can tell you in the majority of the cases it's not true this this game plata o plomo is just like a pretext created by the corrupted people. It's not It's not like this. I can tell you that, for example, many people that protect to El Chapo, that had helped him to escape twice, that protect him uh, from the federal police, from the presidency, from the military, from the Navy, they were not scared about him. They were taking tequilas, eating carne asada, going with prostitutes and having parties and they 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 wasn't they wasn't very scared,
0: and what about the relationship between the drug economy and the rest of the economy
1: I mean this is the issue for me this is the deeper, deeper thing about drug drug trafficking and not just in mexico in the world if you see you can see the economy of Mexico if you see the numbers, the economy is not growing. The the trafficking of 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 drugs by the Mexican cartels, according with the U.S. government, is is bigger than any other part of the world. No, they are saying this. This is this is what they, they are saying. So they are saying, oh, the Mexican cartels, in a specific, the Sinaloa cartel. Oh, they win a lot, a lot of millions, millions, millions of of, of money. They are the most powerful drug drug cartel in the world. But where is this money? This money is not in Mexico. If you go to Mexico, it's still these 50 millions of people that doesn't have to eat anything to eat tomorrow. It's like this. If you see, you are not, see, you are not watching growing the cities, growing the, the, the places to work, creating, uh, creating new, new companies. You don't see this. The Mexican economy is collapsed. Where does this money go? This is the key of the issue. This is the heart of the issue. I have been talking by many years with one lawyer that was very, 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 very near to El Chapo and El Mayo. And he, also, he always told me, you are not watching the big thing. You are are not just watching the big thing. Yes, you are just watching the dead people, the disappearance. Yes, also you are watching the corruption. Okay, but why? Why all these things? Because the money. Because all this money and this money is not in Mexico. It's in the world. That's why the, the Sinaloa cartel became so powerful. Not because Mexico, yes, Mexicans, Mexican officials are very corrupted because the money that they produce goes by the banks everywhere and are distributing all these all this dirty money is is arriving everywhere and I think illegal trafficking of drugs produce millions of dollars these millions are not in Mexico these millions are most of them in other, in other parts of the world and the Worst thing is that really, even El Chapo now is under trial. There in New York, no one wants to stop this. No one wants to stop this dirty business. This dirty business because many, many legal business, many legal bankers, many legal or supposedly legal people depends of this money. Not just Mexico.
0: I want to talk about the case of the disappeared students from Ayotzinapa. Students at a radical rural teacher's college in the state of Guerrero in Mexico's southwest, a state with a long history of peasant radicalism, dirty war repression, and drug cultivation. López Obrador has pledged an investigation into the 2014 disappearance of the 43 students. This has been a huge issue in Mexico and became a huge political problem for Peña Nieto. And I want to talk more about the case, but for those who aren't familiar, can you first explain the overall story of what happened to the students and the government cover-up that followed?
1: I wish to start saying that, for me, this is the most important case uh, in my career, in all my career. For me, this had been the most complicated investigation um, because... um, Involve uh, too many, too many people. Not just the victims, the obviously victims, the students. No, because the ob- obviously victims, the students that were were murdered that night. Also, because there exist other not obviously victims that were all the people that was, were were unjustly uh, arrested and tortured by the Mexican government, trying to for, to get from them confessions of one crime that they didn't commit. But the case is this. On September of 2014, 100 students traveled from, from Ayotzinapa, from the school localized in Ayotzinapa, to Iguala to try to kidnap, to take some uh, buses to use these bosses to participate in one protest in Mexican in Mexico City that would be in on October 2 to commemorate the massacre of the military against the students in 1968
0: and just to pause just to pause very briefly in Mexico just for American listeners there it's a tradition of of student radicals to Steal buses temporarily to get to protests. This is a not abnormal Absolutely.
1: thing. And also uh, we have to explain that these students came from very poor families. It's not like uh, the media class students that, okay, let's we can rent a bus uh, and that's all. They didn't have money to, to get a bus, uh, to rent a bus, to be able... To abos to be to be able to to go to travel to Mexico City. That's why they used to do these things, and not just these students. Also, students from other parts of Mexico. And I have to say, never, never in the story occurs something like what happened. What happened that night uh, in in Iguala. So these students went to there, and. On September twenty-seven of 2014, one day later, later the Mexican society wake up with a notice that many students disappeared, that, 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 that three students were murdered in Iguala, In on their, they, they were under attack by many hours and no one knows really what happened. Immediately, the Mexican government said, We never get notice about what was happening in Iguala. We got notice three or four hours after the attack. We never participate. We are so sorry about what happened. We are doing an investigation. And suddenly, uh, very fast, the government said, Okay, we make our investigation. We've done our investigation. And we discovered that this attack were planified by the mayor, Jose Luis Abarca, and his wife, because the students tried to disturb, uh, to, to interrupt in a political meeting of the wife. So the mayor became crazy, very angry, and ordered to the municipal police attack to the students. And then they were given to a little gang called Guerreros Unidos. And this gang burned all the bodies that night and then all the ashes of the 43 bodies were through were in, in a river um, near to Iguala. This is the official story. What really happened and what I was able to discover and is published in my book, A Massacre in Mexico, is that since the beginning, all the time, in real time, the Mexican government was noticed about what was happening that night. The military members of the federal police participate directly, were there when the attack occurred against the students. And not just this. I was able to prove with documents that not just the government was lying about that they they, they really participate, but also the Mexican government, the military and the federal police were monitoring to the students Three hours before the attack, not the mayor, not the municipal police, not the little gang Guerreros Unidos was the army and the federal police who were monitoring to the students since they left since the first minute that they left the school. During all the all the travels, when they arrived near to Iguala, they were there. The army and the federal police were there. They were physical there. And when the students moved inside the city to try to get more buses, the military and the federal police was there were there so um uh, what i was able also to prove is that in in the shooting against the students also participate directly the army exists um exists uh, uh, ballistic proofs that shows this
0: the cover up you have reported included horrific torture being inflicted on people who were not responsible to coerce them to implicate themselves In the disappearances, who was included in this effort to round up and brutalize so many innocent people? And does the systematic way that it was carried out suggest that this sort of torture and framing of the innocent is business as usual for Mexican law enforcement in the military?
1: I was able to get to have access before anyone to all these files related with the students. I mean, almost in real time, I mean immediately I was able to get able to to to, to get access to this to this file. And this way I, I was able to understand to see that most I mean I'm talking about the 80% of the people that have been arrested related with the case that the government said they are guilty, they did it, the 80% were brutally tortured. We are talking about just people that were walking in the streets and suddenly the military or the federal police or the marines arrest them just because like that. We are talking about that, for example, the case of four uh, very young men The Mexican government tortured them uh, brutally and then the Mexican government showed them in TV and said, these guys, these guys confess that they killed the students and they burned the bodies, these guys, and you see the face of these guys in TV and you clearly can see Something is bad in his, in, in his faces, in their faces, because they just looks that someone hit them. So I, I, I go to the files and I was able to verify through the um, medical examinations that all of them, these four guys that supposedly were the guys that killed and burned the bodies, were brutally tortured. Then I was able to talk with their families. And I was able to get letters from them, from uh, from Yale. And I got I got their very sad and dramatic testimonies about how the Marines, how the federal police, how the military, and sometimes all of them together, tortured them. And now these four guys were released by, by one judge just um, last year. Because... After all these years, I mean, almost four years after the tragedy in Iguala, finally, the judges got access to the truth. They just said, these people, these young guys are innocent. Doesn't exist any proof against them. They were brutally tortured. And they, the judges, two courts, ordered the release. And these poor guys now are trying to rebuild their lives after the torture, after all the injustice, but not just like after all this, also after all these campaign made by the government against them, show them like the animals that killed the students. And I have access to them. I have been talking with their families and I know that for them, this held doesn't finish yet because because they are suffering right now the consequences of the torture. Some of them, their families are, do- are just destroyed. Some of them that were married, their wives leave them. So we are talking about a tragedy. I, I'm, I'm just giving this, this example because this is the key example because supposedly these poor guys confess and you can see you can read their confessions. Yes, yes, I killed them. Yes, I, I tortured them. I shoot in their heads. And but when you, supposedly these four guys were the same night, at the same place, and supposedly killed to the same people. But when you read their confessions, they are cr- contradictions in the substance. You just cannot believe. Why? If this is true, the other thing that the other guy is saying cannot be possible. So, also the, the judges also also say that there is a lot of contradiction of of, of their testimonies. It's not it's not any current in their testimonies, uh, in their depositions. So,
0: the testimonies were yes. incoherent. Yes. How high up does knowledge and involvement in the cover up in these framings go?
1: Well, this is the another key question because. Um, What I was able to know is at the beginning, at the beginning, I mean, when the attack were occurring, um, was happening, the president Enrique Peña Nieto didn't know. How can he know? He didn't know. Also, the secretary of the defense. No, he didn't know. The secretary of uh, of state, yes, he knows. He knows because um, one cell of this this uh, secretary of state were there, and they they kind of uh, intelligence intelligence cell inform immediately in in real time to the institutions. So the secretary of state knows. But I mean, many of the heads of the institutions didn't know what was happening, but they did. They they were notis after. Notified. Yes. Also the president, Enrique Peña Nieto, and they just decide to cover the the truth, to protect to the people that really participate and create a fake story trying to cover the truth. And they really tried very hard to do it. And I have to say that they did it by many times because even I was doing my investigation, even, even I was starting to publish some documents, the, even the, the most important media in the United States and the most important media from England and other countries, they just were repeating the fake story of the government, but because they never went to Iguala. They never went to Cocula to ask what really happened. I went to Cocula. I'm not just were able to discover that the Mexican government was lying. Also, I was able to discover what which part of the truth about what happened, that so we are talking about that the Mexican president, former president Enrique Peña Nieto, the Secretary of the Defense Salvador Cienfuegos, the Secretary of State Miguel Angel Osorio Chong, the head of the Attorney General Office Jesus Murillo cara the head of the agency Criminal Agency Tomás Serón, all of them know what was what happened what was the truth. Know about the torture. I can tell you that the former Attorney General Office Jesus Murillo Cara went to threaten to one of to two uh, at least two of the of the of these young men that were just released uh, by the judges to force them to no oh, now you have to repeat the same story in front of the judge. You have to sign again your confession in front of the judge, because many of these people, of course, when they they were taken in front of the judge in, in, in court, they said, "I was tortured. I never know these people. I mean, I was forced to sign these these confessions." So the attorney general office tried to force them to keep saying these lies. He said, "You know that I can do every, everything that I." want to with you. You know it. You also experience it.
0: The story you tell about Ayotzinapa offers two different motives for government forces attacking the students' bus. One is that these students from Ayotzinapa are legendarily rebellious and militant left-wing campesino activists, and the government wanted them crushed. But the other motive is that they may have accidentally stolen a bus that was being used to secretly transport drugs and that a cartel leader ordered that the bus be recovered. At the end of the day, how do you weigh these two stories and what does the evidence suggest? And are the two mutually compatible or are they different? Are they mutually exclusive motives?
1: This is also very, interest, very, very interesting. Well, what, what I can tell you is the motivation of the attack was not the political issue. I mean because all the things that happened that night doesn't doesn't let to believe this. You know, these one hundred students were distributed in five buses at the end of that night. But just from two buses, all the students disappear. Not from the not not from not from all five, all the five bosses, you know, five from here, ten from there. No. Was focused. The disappearance was focused in two bosses. The whole di- dynamic of the attack doesn't, doesn't let believe that was a political issue because uh, was very focused, the attack against these two bosses. Also was very focused attack against a third boss, against the football players. And was this attack occurred because that boss was just the same, looks the same, like the other two bosses where all the students disappeared. Was white and green. All the rest of the bosses that night were from different colors. The three bosses that were attacked that night are just with the same colors. Even the three bosses were in different places that night. So that, because this information, these things, I was able to see the, the photograph, the forensic photos, uh, taken by the by the forensic group, the forensic people officials that were working that night, I was able to get access to to the shells, to the list of the shells in one place and another. And I can tell you that the attack, the dynamic of the attack doesn't let believe that this was a political issue. What was a political issue was after the attack. I mean when the government decided I don't care about these guys. I don't care about these students. Uh, They are uncomfortable for me. Better if this happened. I didn't plan- planify, but better that this happened because I don't care about them. Maybe also this could help to stop this kind of, of groups in Mexico. They didn't care about, the the government didn't care about their their relatives. They thought, the government thought that, oh, these poor people, who cares about them? I mean... They, that was a political issue. I mean, because these students were rebel, because these students come came from this school, just yes, because this, the government tried to cover the issue, tried to protect to the real people that commit this crime. Also, the Mexican government tried to 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 attack to the to the victims, trying to say that the students were part of one cartel, that 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 they were part of one gang called uh, uh, Los Rojos. So this is one of the this attack from the Mexican government was a political issue. After, after the, after the, the, the tragedy in Iguala, not, not during the, the tragedy. I, I have proofs uh, um, that um, the focus of the attack was these two buses. I, I was able to, to know where does these students get these buses, where like, two or three days before the attack in Iguala, they took these buses in Chilpancingo. When they took these, took these buses, the federal police immediately tried to stop them, tried to take them back these uh, buses. Uh, even the students stole other buses because um, from September 20 until September 26. Uh, the students already stole more than eight buses. Even that, just two buses, just because two buses, these two buses that uh, the night of September 26th were the focus of the attack, just because these two buses, the federal police, were react very aggressively against the students when they took these two buses. So also I was able to get information from one cell of Beltrán Leyva's brothers' cartel, because this is the big cartel that controls this part of Mexico, Guerrero. Guerrero um, is one of the biggest producers of heroin in Mexico, almost as a Sinaloa. At the in uh, Chihuahua, so Guerrero produced a lot of heroin, and this heroin is trafficked to United States. So what I was able to know um, about uh, about this is that many of these drugs, many of this heroin is um, is uh, hidden in these buses that travel from Guerrero to the to United States or to transport people. And the, the information that I got is that these two buses where the students disappeared were charged by uh, two millions of heroin. And that's why the students didn't know it, never get notice about this. But uh, that's why uh, the drug uh, bus the owner of this drug ordered to the federal police and order to the military stop the buses and take him back his drugs. One of the last testimonies, depositions of El Vicentillo in in, in this trial related with El Chapo.
0: Is this uh, is this uh, Vicente Zambada Niebla or yes. El Vicentillo? Sí, yes.
1: Mm-hmm. The, Yes, this 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 last uh, testimony of him in, in in New York. Uh he said that many times several times the cartel, the Sinaloa cartel used to contract to the federal police to do the dirty job. So they didn't have to spend even to pay sicarios uh, and to to spy the enemies, to follow the enemies, to kill them. No, he said many times, we just called to the federal police, please get our enemy or kill them or something like that. So that's what happened that night. I published this on 2016. Now this this the same the same way to work now was confirmed by El Vicentillo by Vicente Niebla in court in New York. But I know that this works like this. Many cartels. Doesn't, do, doesn't have to worry about these kind of things, these kind of operatives, because they have the federal police. It's easier with the federal police. Who will stop them? Who will stop to the colonel if, if he, if he wants to go to attack the bosses of the students? Who will stop the military if they take the, the, the students away? No one. So that's why many cartels use the federal, use the force of the state uh, to attack to their enemies or to resolve their problems and that's what what that, that's exactly what happened that night this cartel this boss called to the colonel that was the head of the 27 battalion in Iguala said please taking back my drugs. I don't know. I don't care what you have to do, taking back my drugs. And that's why the attack was focused just in these two bosses. These two bosses were in two different parts of Iguala. The attack was almost uh, simultaneously. And this is the reason. So the reason was the drugs. The reason, the reason was the ties uh, between the military and the federal police with this drug lord. But the reason to cover the, the case, to protect to the military and the federal police, to not get give justice to these families was a political issue.
0: And speaking of the politics, what comes next? Do you think that AMLO will ensure a real independent investigation?
1: I I really have a lot of doubts. Before this government started, I I have some confidence about that. But... I have to say that now I don't see this very clear. First, because some of the people, some of the federal police bosses, chiefs that uh, covered all this story is still, is still in their places. And they were, uh, they are, uh, they are, they are still working there and, and they will work in the new institution, uh, La Guardia Nacional, that is creating by, that the Andres Manuel López Obrador wants to create. One of the advisors, the principal advisors in security issues of the president is Luis Cárdenas Palomino. He's a close, close friend of Thomas Ceron That was one of the most, uh, most, uh, most uh, important person involved in, in the in the cover of the case, trying to create the fake, uh, the fake accusations, all these things. So I see, I see many signs that show me that um, I don't know why. Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador is taking all these people uh, beside him. Why they are taking taking their advices? But of course, any one of these people want to lose their privilege. No one want to go to jail. And and the complicities in Mexico are like this: one day you cover me, and tomorrow I will cover you. So no one, no one at, at the end does nothing against the crimes and the just impunity grows every day.
0: I'm Aziz Rana and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Common Wind, Afro-American Currents in the Age of the Haitian Revolution by Julius S. Scott, with a foreword by Marcus Rediker. The Common Wind is a gripping and colorful account of the intercontinental networks that tied together the free and enslaved masses of the New World. Having delved deep into the gray obscurity of official 18th-century records in Spanish, English, and French, Julius Scott has written a powerful history from below. Scott follows the spread of rumors of emancipation and the people behind them, bringing to life the protagonists in the slave revolution. Though the common wind is credited with having, quote, opened up the Black Atlantic with a rigor and a commitment to the power of written words, the manuscript remained unpublished for 32 years. Now, after receiving wide acclaim from leading historians of slavery in the New World, it has been published by Verso for the first time, with a foreword by the academic and author Marcus Redeker. The Common Wind, Afro-American Currents in the Age of the Haitian Revolution, by Julius S. Scott, with a foreword by Marcus Redeker. Out now from Verso Books. I want to turn to the trial of El Chapo Guzman in in New York federal court, which you've referred to a bunch already. What has been shown at trial that we didn't already know? and, And also what has been shown that has confirmed some of your reporting in the past?
1: For me... Nothing new, nothing new, nothing. Maybe the only new thing was the the Chapo likes to monitor, to spy to his, to his wife, Emma Coronel, and to his lovers. Maybe, <laughs> I, I have to confess, I didn't know this. This was new for me. <laughs> I thought that he was more confident about himself. Now I see no. He's not. He's not too much. <laughs> so he has a
0: bit of a complex.
1: I think so. I think so. Uh, we don't know why, but maybe he has some reasons. And um, the point is that after this, uh, I mean, I, I haven't heard any new, any new thing. Uh, many of these things I have been published them in my books in Arkoland. Other things, for example, that El Vicentillo said about disagreement with the DEA, I published this in articles on on 2011, 2012. I also show that this... This
0: is that the DEA provided the Sinaloa cartel the freedom to smuggle drugs into the U.S. in exchange for providing information to the DEA on their rivals. This is according to an attorney for... Vi sent it a Nieu, yes, right? yes,
1: yes, yes. I was, I was, I was able, I was able to to talk with him directly on 2011. I was the first journalist that published this. Also, I was able to publish the this document that that I mean, for me, was ridiculous that the judge said, "Oh, we cannot talk about this issue." Come on, this issue was public. I mean, it's not a secret. Was published on 2011. Yes, maybe some people doesn't remember anymore, but was published. So. I'm really not not surprised about what he's saying in the trial. I'm very surprised, very, very, very surprised about all the things that no one wants to say in trial. This is the key issue. Even the Attorney General's office, even the lawyers of El Chapo, no one's want to talk about this and is. How the cartel laundry the money? Yes, everyone, everyone, all the witness, all the testimonies is about oh yes, El chapo is very bad. Yes, he killed, he, he kidnapped, he tortured, yes, we trafficked tons of cocaine, yes, we went to Paris, yes, he is my he's my compadre. No one is talking about the key issue. Where is the money? The US government is saying that just El chapo has 14 billions of dollars 14 billions of dollars just by himself and it's not rare that no one is talking about the money in the trial even the attorney general even the attorney uh, the attorney general office and the members not no one no one is asking these things in, because these things are is very are, are very uncomfortable the money should be untouchable for everyone. No one is talking about of, of the people that laundry this money. No one is talking about the bank that used to that the cartel used to used to laundry the money the the money so no one is talking about how this money traveled to UK or to Spain or to Paris or to New York no 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 one is talking about the key issue i am more interested and i'm more uh, i am more interested about all the things that not no one is talking that all the things that that are saying in the trial because anything of this is is new for me. For example, these issues about how this was the testimony, the deposition of um, el rey Zambada, uh, Jesús uh, Zambada García, the brother of El Mayo Zambada the other head of the Sinaloa cartel, when he said, oh, yes, yes, I paid these millions to Genaro García Luna, the head of the Secretary of Security in Mexico. Well, I published this on 2010, when Genaro García Luna had all the power. When he said, oh, yes, also, also uh, to...
0: And when he tried to have you assassinated. Yes,
1: because I published this. Because I was the only one that published this, how the president the the current president I mean I'm not talking about the ex- a former president. I published all this information. When the Chapo Guzman and the Silanoa Cartel was on the top of the power, when the Felipe Peña, Felipe Calderon and and Genaro Garcia Luna and all these military corrupted were in the top of the power, I published the information there in that moment and that's why they want to kill me now all this information is in court is good but I'm asking I am asking to myself okay now Jesús Zambada revealed this Vicentillo, Vicente Zambada Niebla also confirmed this and revealed more about how the federal police work for them I also published this in my book on 2010 how how to spy the
0: Los Señores del Narco
1: but now I, I ask to myself, okay, what does the U.S. government will do with this information? Because Jesús Ambada Niebla was not the witness of the defense of El Chapo, was the witness of the Attorney General's office. I mean, was the witness of the U.S. government. So, And you know, when, uh, uh, when the U.S. government present to one witness, in court, is because they confirm that the information that they will give is true. So now I ask to myself, after the trial, will start also a case against uh, Felipe Calderón, against Genero Garcia Luna, against all these members of the military that works for a uh, cartel, uh, against all the members of the federal police that also works for the cartel. If this trial against El Chapo is not just a show, should be a case. The court should, the judge or someone should open a case against these corrupted people that destroy Mexico, and also with El Chapo are responsible, have responsibility about uh, all these murders and disappearance.
0: What effects? has El Chapo's extradition had on the drug war and the cartel business. W- what I've read is that all it's accomplished is to unleash more violence as rival factions of the Sinaloa cartel try to fill the power vacuum left behind.
1: I don't, I don't see this. I mean, the problem was when El Chapo was the last time arrested uh, at the beginning of 2016, in that moment when he was arrested, his faction inside the Sinaloa Cartel start a war between el licenciado, La Damaso Damaso Lopez Nunez, that was the the right hand of El Chapo, that was the man of his confidence, and he left the cartel. Uh, he he left the responsibility of the cartel when he was arrested, and um, between the Licenciado Damaso Lopez Nunez and the and the Chapo sons, start a war between them to see who get the power of El Chapo. At the end. Uh, Damaso López Núñez wa, uh, was arrested in Mexico, then extradited in United States, and he will be another witness in this trial against El Chapo. And by the moment, the sons of El Chapo, I mean, Ivan and Alfredo uh, Guzmán Salazar, the two sons, uh, two of the four sons that he have with his first wife, Alejandrina Salazar, Uh, these two young guys are are trying to get the power of El Chapo, but they are very small. The information that I got from the cartel is that they're still very small. Really, all the power that used to be between El Mayo and El Chapo, now all this power is concentrated in in El Mayo. He's taking all the pieces of the cake. All the power that the El Chapo used to have now is concentrated in the hands of El Mayo Zambada and the sons of El Chapo trying to grow inside the inside the cartel, but you know, no what I have heard is no one have respect from them because they are very aggressive, they are violent, they don't keep their work and you know in this business these kind of people have to keep their their, their worth and they don't this young guys don't used to do it
0: the epicenters of the violence in mexico's drug war move around the country according to how conflicts over different plazas or drug trafficking routes how they develop over time zooming out what are the most violent conflicts between cartels and between cartels and the government around across Mexico right now? And and what is driving them?
1: I have the the perception. I have the idea that between the cartels, the big cartels, is not a war anymore. I mean, they learn that all this violence uh, is not good for their business. I mean, a war between Sinaloa Cartel and Juarez Cartel, a war between the Sinaloa Cartel and Arellano Félix Cartel, uh, or a war between the Sinaloa Cartel against the Gulf Cartel. I don't I don't see this very clearly. What I see is two wars that I think is are maybe the most important. One, in El Golfo. Because uh, El cartel del Golfo, uh, some, some old Zetas are trying to get more power. Some members of, the, of Los Zetas want to take back the, pow- the, the, the their power. And, and they have this conflict with the Gulf Cartel. That's why in Tamaulipas is a very hot, hot place. Because exists until now this war between the Gulf Cartel and Los Zetas. And, um, of course, I think that still um, a war, I think, every day less between Beltrán Levas brothers and the Sinaloa cartel. I have heard that uh, El Mayo is trying to stop this, trying to say, OK, El Chapo, that was the problem, now is in, in New York we can have some new arrangements because, you know, even even Beltran, most of the Beltran-Levitt brothers are dead or in jail. Exist, um uh, Alfredito, uh, Alfredito Beltran, that is the, is the son of one of these uh, beltran Levite brothers and he's taking a lot of power because he makes an association uh, with uh, Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación and some parts of Los Zetas, so this guy Alfredito could be very important in the next in the next months. And he is very angry with El uh, Chapo's uh, sons, with Ivan and the other Alfredo, the son of El Chapo. And I think now is more is less war. El Chapo, El Mayo, is trying to to get the peace inside the family because at the end, all of them are relatives. But uh, I think it's something that is not clear that is totally resolved. In other way, I mean el, el, el cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación ha, has some problems with members of la familia michoacana with members of los caballeros templarios but now they have the hegemon, hegemoni, hegemonia in Michoacán, in Jalisco, in Colima and they, they. I think they, this war doesn't exist again. What is very violent always and it and it is it's almost out of control. It's totally out of out of control, I mean, It's these little gangs that are trying to control the little business of the extortions and the business of the kidnapping and the business of, of the dr- sell drugs in the streets. I mean this
0: And this is what we saw in, in Juarez. Yes. In the war between the Juarez cartel and the Sinaloa cartel. You have This war going on and you have government forces engaged on behalf of the Sinaloa cartel, but uh, there's this massive violence. But within the context of that disorder and chaos, you have all these smaller criminal groups taking advantage of the impunity to shake every business down and just solidify this climate of terror for everyday people.
1: Absolutely, and it's the same in Quintana Roo. And it's the same now in the Mexi- in Mexico City. When you hear that exists now gunfires in Mexico City, come on, what is happening? The big cartels? No, are not the big cartels. Are small crime organizations that want to take uh, control of some pieces of, of the city. And they are fighting because... They are fighting by, uh, for the clients that buy drugs, but they are not big cartels. They are small small criminal groups, but they are very violent and they are very dangerous. I think more dangerous than the cartels because until now, even sounds crazy, the cartels, these, these old structures, follow some kind of rules. These little gangs... Most of the members are very young. They consume a lot of drugs and they're just crazy. They just want the money now, now, now. No matters if they want to kill a women, babies, kids. They don't care. They just want the things now. And they are very violent and very, very dangerous. And I don't see any plan of the government to try to fix it, fix this.
0: I want to talk about the the U.S. role. The military, as we've discussed, has been involved in rampant human rights abuses, but that militarization has very much been supported by the U.S., which has provided the Mexican drug war with nearly $2.9 billion through a program called the Merida Initiative. Can you say a little about what role the U.S. government plays in Mexico's drug war?
1: The responsibility of the U.S. government is total in this mess in Mexico. It's total. Through the Plan Mérida, the U.S. government was sending equipment, guns, was given training to the military, to the members of the federal police, to members of the Marines, they gave to, to these forces, um, uh, airplanes, helicopters, all these things to, through the Plan Merida. But if you gave more power to corrupted institutions, what do you think will be the result? This! I mean, when you hear, again, sorry, that El Vicentillo said, "Ah, oh, we don't have to care, Oh, the the federal police can spy now better to our enemies. So they they just spy them. They they intercept their phone calls. They have better equipment to do it. Who gave this equipment? With which money was bought? With the U.S. government. So my question is: the U.S. government were so stupid to give more power to to this bad institutions by accident it, the result was terrible had been terrible because yes now this military now these marines now this federal police yes they are better trained they, they they are be- better trained they have more better equipment but not to service for the society to service better to the cartels
0: speaking of the the US role It's worth emphasizing that while so many American conservatives are just apoplectic over this make-believe criminal threat posed by migrants who are in reality coming to the U.S. in order to be exploited as low-wage service workers, the U.S. has in fact flooded Mexico with guns that are massacring Mexican people. And Americans rarely talk about that the guns that are being used by cartels are purchased in the United States
1: I have to say that another thing not just this I have seen some documents um about this kind of training given by the US government to marines to the federal police to the to the members of the of the military and I saw that was a very specific training about to how to make an interrogatory?
0: An interrogation.
1: Is this, is this the practice that they did when they interrogate to all these people innocent in the case of Iguala? Is, is this the technique? I'm I, I asking because you know that many people said that the School of America's in, 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 in the past, used to, we're, 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 in this school, were trained many military in different countries that then they come back to the, to the countries and start to torture and start to do terrible things. I don't know if, if this is kind of the training given by the US government. I don't know. But because this training is still a secret, it's not very clear what kind of issues the, the Mexican officials learn in United States, we don't know. But I think these, all this information should be transparent so we can see and we can judge and we can ask the correct questions.
0: Do you think that the drug war, the violence can come to an end without some form of legalization and government regulation Because drugs are an American public health issue, and then the criminalization of drugs, supposedly to deal with that public health issue, has has not only failed to keep drugs away from Americans—drug overdose rates are at their highest level in history—but obviously, as we've been talking about, the criminalization of drugs and the drug war has created this horrific violence problem for Mexico and led to mass incarceration— in the U.S., do we need a total break with the war?
1: I have to say that I am very conservative about this issue. I I think that um, at least one country, as Mexico, is not is not ready to the, to legalize the drugs. I think that we have to we have to do many many steps first than this. The violence in Mexico is not just because the cartels, as I already said. Is because all this corruption, is because the impunity. We are talking about that in Mexico, the ninety, the ninety-six percent of the crimes committed in Mexico, even a little robbery, than the big, big, big business of the drug trafficking, are impune. Ninety-six percent of all the crimes in Mexico, even the little one. More than the more than the one hundred uh, percent of the crimes are not denounced in Mexico. Are not denounced. The people prefer to keep quiet, even if it's, it's, it's a terrible crime because they don't have any trust in the government. This is official's numbers of the Mexican government. So I mean, you, when, when you see this, when you see the poverty in Mexico, you see. The equation doesn't shows that it's just the consume of drugs that that create this this disaster, or, the, or I mean the illegal consum- the, because the, the the drugs are illegal. I think that in Mexico, the corruption is at this level that even in in a very legal legal business, always exists this organized crime. For example, when Vicente Fox decide. To, uh, to legalize the gamble. And exist now the legal casinos in Mexico everywhere. In many of these very legal casinos exist all the illegality, illegality, the organized crime, because the Mexican government really doesn't have the power or the conviction. I think that the legalization is, 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 is not the first step. I think it sounds the easiest step, but I think first... We have to fight against the corruption and put the the corrupted people in jail. Second, we have to take away all the money of the cartels because if not, we don't do it. These cartels will create another organized crime or another business to get all this money. And, and third, I, th- I think, of course, before any legalization, we have to make huge campaigns in all the world in privation of all the consequences to take drugs. You can just open the market and say, no, I don't care. Cocaine, methamphetamines, heroin, I don't care. Everyone is responsible all of their lives. It's not true. Because when the people doesn't have enough information, they don't they don't they cannot take correct decisions. so I think it's a long, long, long time to to really be be prepared already to the legalization. That is the case that you know that one one country here in Europe that legalized the drugs now they are thinking that oh maybe we didn't do it well and I will give just another example as you know. Most of the drugs consumed in the United States are not illegal. Most of the drugs consumed illegally are not illegal, are from the pharmaceutics. But their consume is illegal because supposedly you have to have a prescription to be able to get access to this drug. But in the United States obviously exists a huge black market of prescriptions that led to these people to ask to get access to these legal drugs illegally so how the world how some someone can think that the drugs that the legal market could be under control if even now right now the legal market of drugs are out of control so i think that we have to 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 think very careful about about these things how we we how we are dreaming to control something that even we are not able in the legal way
0: it's a good point i my my counterpoint though would be to look at every time the drug war wins a a victory it in reality tends to make things worse. Look at the French connection being shut down in 1971, which dramatically increases the amount of heroin for the American market that's coming out of Mexico. And then in the 1980s, when the Caribbean route for Colombian cocaine is squeezed off, that pushes those routes into Mexico. So every time the U.S. drug war wins, things have gotten worse for Mexico.
1: I think because this war against drugs is not real. I think, th- for me, this is my, my conclusion. I think this war against drugs is not real. Until, until all this money is still there, until no one wants to know who laundry the money, where is the money, what does the money does in the world, this, mo- this dirty money. I think the, the drug, the war against drugs is fake. It's, it's not real. I, I, I am really convinced that, that have never been real until now.
0: Well, Annabel Hernandez, thank you so very much.
1: Thanks to you. Have a pleasure.
0: Anabel Hernandez is an investigative journalist and the author of A Massacre in Mexico, the true story behind the missing 43 students, and Narcoland, the Mexican drug lords and their godfathers, whose English editions are published by Verso. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after remarking that, the police, the judiciary, and the administration are not the representatives of a civil society which administers its own universal interests in them and through them. They are the representatives of the state, and their task is to administer the state against civil society. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and please do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this podcast up and running strong even a few bucks is huge